This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about snow, the various ways it falls from the sky and how it's transformed on the ground. It's a good show, recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. The snowpack is a complete record of all the weather throughout the entire winter. And you can see it in every single layer. And it's fascinating. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Mark Staples. Mark is the director of the Forest Service Utah Avalanche Center. He graduated from the Montana State University Snow Science Program. And here in Utah, he and his team predict the snow conditions for avalanche reports. Here with Mark, we discuss the different forms snow can take when falling from the sky and the ways that snow is transformed once it's on the ground. He explains how this information is critical for understanding the snow stability and avalanche danger, both here in the LaSalle Mountains and elsewhere around the West. We begin our interview with Mark explaining some of the basic information behind snow. Snow is a combination of water and air, water in the frozen state. It's like a lattice of ice crystals. Newly fallen snow might only be 5% ice. 95% air. As it gets denser and sits around a little longer, it might be 30% ice, 70% air. That's what makes snow so unique. Unlike anything else, ice in the natural environment is really close to its melting temperature. Think about down here in Moab, ice melts at 32 degrees. Up in the mountains, it's usually pretty close to that, only maybe 10 degrees away. What we would call a cold day would be 22 degrees, and that's just 10 degrees away from its melting temperature. So think of it in terms of if you were to build a building out of steel, imagine if you just had to heat up that steel by 10 degrees and it would melt. How much would you trust your life to that structure? So that's why snow is so unique. We trust our lives to it when we're out recreating and skiing and snowmobiling and doing other things, but it's really close to its melting temperature. It's actually really close to something called the triple point, When you graph any material with different temperatures and pressures, a material can be either a gas, a liquid, or a solid. So in terms of water, it can be steam, it can be liquid water, or it can be ice or snow. The triple point is where all three of those phases exist at the same temperature and pressure. Snow and water and ice is very close to that triple point. All that means is that it changes a lot. And it changes fast. And so with that ability to change, how is the structure of the snow changing with it? In simple terms, the depth of the snow is decreasing. So you might have a foot of snow, and after some time you might only have six inches of snow as it settles. And then you lose those air spaces. We might have six feet of snow on the ground, but way more than that fell out of the sky. It might have been 12, 15, 20 feet of snow fell. But by the time it sits around, it settles down and compresses and gets denser, and then you end up with six feet. 
The snow, though, that's falling, so you're saying it has more air when it's falling. Does that change from storm to storm? Definitely. So can you picture uh, a typical beautiful little snowflake? It has these six arms. Those start to break down. And over time, that snowflake will turn into something that looks like a little ball of ice. Instead of those little snowflakes, it can fall out of the sky in a little needle or a little column. It can fall out of the sky just like a little ball of ice. We call that snow grapple. There's so many ways that it can fall. Usually we see the little snowflakes. There are two ways that snow can change. It goes from that snowflake and it turns into a little rounded particle. Those rounded particles bond really well together and they form a cohesive layer of snow. That is under a temperature regime where you have a small temperature difference over a big distance. We call that a small temperature gradient. When you have a big temperature gradient, you could have a snow surface temperature that's zero degrees Fahrenheit and there's just maybe a foot of snow, and it's 32 degrees at the ground. So that's a big temperature difference over a short distance. When you have that steep temperature gradient, snow changes in another direction. Instead of forming little round balls of ice, it forms square facets. Those don't bond well. People typically call that sugar snow or rotten snow. When you pick up a handful of it, it just shakes out of your hand. That does not bond well. That is what we call a weak layer. And then when we get snow like we've gotten recently here in March, that snow lands on top of that weak layer. That snow is very cohesive. And then what we just saw today is huge avalanches breaking on that weak layer at the ground. So the entire season's snowpack comes tumbling down the mountain because of those two ways that snow can change. So snow is changing in multiple ways. The type of snow that falls from the sky can be different. And then Mm -hmm. the way the snow interacts on the surface of the Mm -hmm. mountainside can be different. That's exactly right. We watch how it falls out of the sky and that affects the skiing quality and how fun snow is to recreate on. But once it starts changing on the ground, that really determines whether or not we'll get avalanches. What is affecting how it falls from the sky? There's a whole chart where it's been mapped out exactly under what temperature regime and what humidity and everything that you get certain snow crystals. With most storms, we see the pretty little snowflakes. You can have light, fluffy snow, and you can have dense, heavy snow. But if you melt it down and you measure the inches of water, that tells us how much weight has been added to the snowpack. When we talk about snowfall, we talk about how much water fell. If we talk in inches of water, it doesn't matter if it's light, fluffy snow or dense, thick, heavy snow. We always know how much weight was added to the snowpack. In terms of avalanches, that weight is critical because if you add more weight to something, you add more stress. The more stress you add to something, the more likely it is to break. So when the snowpack breaks, you get avalanches. That's why talking about water is hugely important. Is it always going to be about the way snow changes that are the cause and why we see avalanches? There are other things that cause avalanches. A good example would be in the spring when it gets really warm. What happens to snow when it gets warm? It's close to its melting point, so it starts to melt and lose strength, and we can get what we call wet avalanches in the spring. And Those are the result of the snow losing strength, and as it loses strength, it can no longer basically hold itself up. The real difference there is that you're decreasing the strength of the snowpack as it melts. Other times of the year, the more deadly avalanches, the ones that break on these weak layers, that weak layer has a certain amount of strength. 
we've added stress to the snowpack and we pushed it to its breaking point. So with dry avalanches, we increase the stress and it goes beyond the strength and then we get an avalanche. In the spring, when things get wet, we decrease the strength as opposed to adding stress and then we get avalanches for that reason. How uniform is snow on the mountain on the LaSalle's? The thing that really sparked my interest in snow is the first time I dug a snow pit. The snowpack is a complete record of all the weather throughout the entire winter. And you can see it in every single layer. And it's fascinating. So the snowpack has all these different layers. A good example would be if you had a really windy period of time, you'll often see a stripe in the snow pit. You'll see pine needles and debris. And you'll know, oh, the wind blew that day. And then maybe it gets really warm. The surface of the snow at some point in the winter gets a little bit damp, melts just a little bit. Then it freezes again. You'll get an ice crust, and you'll see that in the snowpack. Most forecasters and avalanche professionals can dig into the snowpack, and they can usually tell you, oh, that's the, uh, that's the February 12th crust. That's the January 13th week layer. And they know all these things based on when they happened and what weather caused them. And they track that all season long, and that helps them predict avalanches. And then as far as one area on the mountain versus another, are those patterns going to be the same, or are there going to be different stories that these snow layers tell in different areas? There's something we call spatial variability. The snowpack varies across space. So that's a real challenge. There are a lot of obvious reasons. On a south-facing slope, you would expect different conditions than you would on a cold north-facing slope. We can track those differences and we expect them. And on a large scale, we're pretty good at tracking all these layers and these differences. Where it gets us in trouble is on the micro scale, especially in terms of uh, when we go out and we want to ski a certain slope. We might go to a small slope and dig in the snow to assess the layers. And we might think that it looks safe. And then we go to the big slope that we hope to ski. And if it's just a little bit different, which it typically is, it might mean the difference between life and death. So the spatial variability is a big concern. When we do our forecasting, we do it for an entire mountain range. When we teach classes, we try and help people understand that there are variations in the snowpack. What that means is... The difference between a safe slope and a dangerous slope is not a clear line. It's blurry. So you have to give yourself a wide margin. Because that line is blurry, if you try and get too close to it, you'll end up on the wrong side someday. You have to give yourself a lot of room for error because of that variability. How loud are avalanches? Pretty quiet. Quieter than you would expect. There is a infrasonic detection system up in Little Cottonwood Canyon that the Utah Department of Transportation uses to detect avalanches, and they have some sensors that are tuned to the exact frequency that avalanches make. Wet avalanches that are typically a little bit louder to our ears, but to this avalanche detection system, a dry slab avalanche that typically causes more problems is louder to those sensors. We don't hear it, though. How fast are avalanches traveling, and what kind of forces are behind them? They can go 60 to 80 miles an hour. There are a couple different parts of an avalanche. There's the actual avalanche itself, the chunks of snow that are coming down the mountain. But then there's the powder cloud, which creates kind of an air blast. You have this shockwave of air coming down in front of the avalanche. But this air has a bunch of snow particles in it, so it's way denser. Because of that increased density going 80 miles an hour, 
it can do a lot of damage. Even though the avalanche debris doesn't hit something, that powder cloud is coming down. It can go even faster, and that can wipe out trees and destroy buildings. What determines where an avalanche starts on a slope? Basically, any place steeper than 30 degrees is steep enough for the snow to slide. Then it takes a specific recipe, which is you need a slab. That's the cohesive layer of snow. You need a weak layer underneath that. That's any layer of snow that's less cohesive than the slab above it. The last thing you need is a trigger. It's typically us. If you have all those four ingredients, you can get an avalanche. If you remove any one of them, you don't. The slope angle, that's the only one we can affect. So we can pick slopes that are a little bit less than 30 degrees, like let's say 28 degrees, and we won't get an avalanche. In the LaSalle's this winter, there was a giant natural avalanche. In those cases, what's the trigger when humans aren't involved? That's a good question. In only about 10% of the cases, is it some other trigger? And what that typically is, is just that one extra snowflake falls and the snowpack just can't hold up any more snow and it breaks. Often it's not one that falls out of the sky. It's more often one that the wind picks up on one side of the mountain and deposits it on the other side. And that's the trigger. There are a few other things. A cornice can break and fall and those are good triggers. As the wind transports snow from one side of the mountain to the other, it blows across ridgelines, and it makes kind of something that looks like a wave at the ridgetop. And it just keeps growing and growing and growing. When you get that big chunk of snow that breaks, it tumbles down the slope, and that can trigger an avalanche too. What makes an avalanche stop? It just goes back to slope angle. There's a whole other angle that's called the alpha angle. It's just a statistical thing for measuring a lot of avalanches and seeing how far they run. If we're near vegetation, the trees will let us know where avalanches run. If you're in an area of dense, mature forest with trees that are 100 years old, if avalanches haven't run there, then you won't see any evidence of it. What we typically see are trees that we call flagged trees. If these trees are growing in an area where avalanches run with some frequency, the avalanches will come down and they'll strip all the branches off the bottom of the tree except for the branches that are pointed downhill. So that's why we call them flagged trees. So vegetation can tell you how far down avalanches run. And the really big avalanche paths, it's pretty cool. You'll see a trim line. You'll see trees that are maybe 10 years old. But then the big mature trees will be trimmed from sort of the 100-year avalanches, kind of like floods. You get your 100-year flood, your 50-year flood. We see the same thing with avalanches. Just a little east of here in Colorado, they've been getting quite a bit of snow, They've had a weak snowpack before that, and they've seen, in one case, I think near Aspen, they saw a 300-year event occur. And even in other places, they've been seeing, just in the last few weeks, avalanches coming down and ripping out sections of mature forest, places where avalanches, at least in our short human memory, uh, we've never seen avalanches run before. But in geologic time, in the, the bigger scale on which Mother Nature operates, there have been avalanches that, that we probably can't even fathom. So what does a human need to do to trigger an avalanche? The weak layer of snow I've talked about, buried deep in the snowpack, is like a layer of dominoes. And you have to tip that first domino over. And when you do that, it just takes off. And in terms of an avalanche or a snow-covered slope, those dominoes cover the entire slope. And when you tip that first one, they all just go, and they all fall down. And then when that fracture occurs... 
the slab of snow on top of them comes tumbling down. Typically, we need to be on the slope somewhere to do that. But there are times, usually during a high avalanche danger when things are very unstable, when you can be down low on the slope in fairly flat terrain underneath a steeper slope, and you tip that first domino, and all of them start collapsing. They go right uphill, and then that avalanche comes crashing down on you. We go out a lot of times during those periods of high danger to see what's going on, and we can be walking on top of a ridge and trigger avalanches like that very safely. The tricky part is that how deeply those dominoes are buried can make it harder or easier to trigger an avalanche. So if they're buried a little deeper, it's harder. If they're shallow, it's a lot easier. A normal, logical, rational person would think if they saw a slope with a bunch of tracks on it, ski tracks, snowmobile tracks, they would think, oh, it's safe. But if we have a deeply buried weak layer, all that means is no one has triggered it yet. Sometimes when we have these deeply buried weak layers, a common thing we teach in our avalanche classes is tracks on a slope do not mean it's stable. And if you hit it in the wrong spot, you can be the first person or the 10th person on a slope, and then you'll get the avalanche. What are the thoughts on how climate change is going to impact snow and snowpack in southeast Utah? Climate is the average. Climate is when we look back in the past, we average out our temperatures, we average out our precipitation. That's climate. Weather is what you get. Avalanches are really strongly dependent on weather. So you might have a warmer year, you might have a colder year, you might have less precipitation, you might have more precipitation over the course of the whole winter. But where it falls, when it falls, how it falls, when the temperatures get cold, when they get hot, that really determines the avalanche activity we see. Certainly, there'll be some trends that we will discover in the future in terms of avalanche activity, and we'll count on some other folks to tell us what those are. But in the meantime, we're really just focused on the weather that we get. You know, a good example is if we get very early season snow, that snow weakens the longer it sits, and that forms a weak layer that created a lot of avalanches we saw just today. In a different scenario, under the same climatic conditions, we could see weather that would keep us warm and dry through the fall. The mountains would be bare ground and bare rock. And then the snow could turn on and not stop and not form a weak layer at the ground. And we could have a very strong and stable snowpack, regardless of what the climate's doing. We'll see variations in avalanche danger and avalanche activity year after year after year, no matter what the climate's doing. Once we look back and average it, we might be able to figure out some trends. How do you study avalanches? What are the kinds of experimental designs you do, and what kind of questions do you go out there and ask when you're doing snow science? Snow is pretty challenging because it's near its triple point, like we talked about, or basically its melting point. It changes really fast. In science, you try and hold things consistent and change one thing at a time and see how things react. That's really hard to do with snow. And the way we study it is destructive, typically. We dig a hole in the snow. Triggering an avalanche is destructive. There's some work being done in labs. There's a cold lab, sort of an environmental facility where they can adjust the temperature and the relative humidity. They can cool the ceiling of the environmental room to act like a cold, clear sky. Like all science, we're just taking baby steps. Most practitioners learn about avalanches from avalanches. 
And a lot of us are former ski patrollers, which means we've been out at sunrise every morning up at a ski area with a backpack full of explosives. We look at the weather, we make a hypothesis, we head out the door, and we put explosives on slopes, and we just watch them happen. So you learn a lot like that. For us as avalanche forecasters, we look at a lot of avalanches. We try and predict them the best we can, but the best way to know what avalanches are doing is to let them tell you. Go see where they're breaking, how they're breaking, how deep they're breaking, how far they're breaking, what layers in the snowpack they're breaking on, and then we'll use that to come up with something a little more concrete. When we don't have avalanches breaking, it gets pretty tough. What is the formula that you use to make avalanche danger forecasts? There is an avalanche danger scale with some defined terms like the likelihood. Our avalanche is certain. Our avalanche is unlikely. You know, if it's a low danger, avalanches are unlikely. If it, avalanches are certain, it's a high danger. There are also some really simple rules of thumb. When it snows and the wind blows, the avalanche danger typically goes up. After it sits for some time, the danger goes down. But that's really the hard part. Just like recently here in Los Alamos, we got 32 inches of snow in about 37 hours. And that 32 inches of snow had three and a half inches of water in it, which was a big, heavy load for here in a short amount of time. It was very easy to crank the danger level up. What gets really tough is knowing how and when the danger starts to drop. There is not a good formula for that. It takes time and it takes experience to know what that danger rating is. Our users pay attention to that. They make decisions based on that. We can't cry wolf and keep the danger elevated longer than it needs to be. We will lose our credibility if we don't call it like it is. It's definitely challenging. What got you interested in snow and snow science? The first time I dug a snow pit, I was absolutely fascinated seeing all the layers, and I wanted to learn more, and I just loved it. And what do you enjoy about doing science and science in general? I like asking a question and going out and trying to find the answer. What's really fun about avalanches, it's a very short time scale. So we get to ask that question, go out in the field, look for answers, potentially the next day get a big storm, and we get to find out if we're right or wrong we get to write about it in our avalanche forecast. People count on that. It's really satisfying when we can give folks the green light and say, hey, it just snowed a bunch, but the snowpack is strong and stable. You can go out, and if it's white, ski it. Well, Mark, it's been super cool to talk to you about snow and avalanches and all this cool science. So thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. To listen to this interview with Mark Staples again or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. The music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hodgkins, and KZMU.